Today's podcast is adapted from a Master Builders webinar that was completed in conjunction with Mark Holland of Hazelton Law. We have answered the questions coming from the community around how do you manage price increases, challenges around supply when using a charge-up contract. In particular, Mark looks at the scope, rates and margins, the role of estimates, variations in charge-up contracts and the well-known 10% rule, how to deal with interim payments and what ongoing obligations are with regard to final costs. This was a highly, highly rated webinar with so much valuable information shared by Mark. I think you'll get a lot of value from this podcast if you're looking to understand how to manage costs with inside a charge-up contract. Welcome along to this webinar. I'm Ryan Castle here on behalf of Master Builders Elevate platform. Fantastic to have you joining us and also our resident expert, Mark Holland from Hazelton Law. Welcome into the webinar, Mark. Great to have you on today. Uh, morning. All. So Mark, hand over to, uh, to you. Thank you. So look, uh, just coming back to something Ryan mentioned uh, at the start, I will be talking about the so-called 10% rule and matters like that. So if I can ask that, questions are perhaps held off until after after that's been addressed. Starting with regard to charge-up contracts, principally speaking, uh, the only difference between a charge-up contract and what we will call a fixed-price contract is how the contract price is calculated. Everything else between a fixed-price contract and a charge-up contract is the same. And it's important to realize that preparing the documents, preparing how you record a charge-up contract requires the same diligence and, and the same comprehensiveness as preparing a fixed-price contract. The principal issue that we see in the early, in the early parts of a contract, uh, whether it's fixed-price or charge-up, is a failure to properly record what the contract scope is, to properly record what the drawings are, what the intentions are, what it is the parties are going to be doing at the point in time. I accept that on some charge-up contracts, uh, albeit it's possibly overstated uh, at the time that the extent that this happens, that there is genuinely an element of, we will figure it out as we go along, but that's unlikely to be the entire scope of the charge-up contract. There will always be some starting point. There'll always be some boundaries within which you are working, or there'll be some hold points, for example, a very common, uh, whole point is in renovations. By the time you've taken off the cladding and you see what condition the framing is like underneath, there's a natural break in the job and then everyone decides what to do. But if that's what the charge of contract is going to do, if there's an element of investigation and decide what's going to go along, that's what needs to be recorded. So scope is hugely important in, a, in charge of contract as as much as in a fixed price contract. Now, in practice, it will be rare that it's a genuine situation of absolutely figure out as we go along. That's it's just simply not how things work. And for example, it's quite likely that there'll be a building consent in place for the work, even though it's a charge of contract. So it's quite clear to say that there will be some scope which is planned. And it's hugely important that that is accurately recorded at the start. The other uh, items which are hugely important to be accurately recorded at the start are any rates and any margins which are going to be applied for the contract. It's common, for example, in the RBC1 uh, ANA contracts and the new build contracts, uh, for there to be rates for the RMB zone staff, uh, for your own labor to be in there. Now, your contract should be quite clear 
as to whether those rates are inclusive or exclusive of your margin. As it's drafted, RBC1 says those rates are inclusive of margin. If that doesn't suit you, either your rates need to change or you need to tweak what RBC1 says. But I have had members call me and get quite grumpy with me down the phone, although it's not my fault, that their rates don't include margin. Why does the master, con- master builder contract says it does? It's very easy to fix that. You either change your rates or you change what the contract says, but there's no point in getting grumpy with someone else about it. Similarly, then uh, it is common with regard to the percentage for there to be two different percentages sometimes. Sometimes a, a member will have one percentage that they will charge for subcontractors and one they will charge for materials. So it's quite important that if you are going to have different percentages, they're clearly recorded in the contract, to what are they going to apply? With regard to percentages for materials, do those separate percentages apply equally to the materials supplied by subcontractors? These are small things to tidy up, and they are decisions to be made, but they should be clearly recorded. When I use the term margin here, I'm using the contractual term margin by which I mean the percentage to be added onto something. If that margin percentage needs to be your company's markup, make it the markup. But um, I'm not going to get into any rows this morning with anyone about whether the margin in the master builder contract means margin or markup as it is understood by an accountant. You make that percentage whatever it is you need it to be, rather than focusing on whether it's the accounting term or not. But it is quite important that the rates are included, that you state whether they're inclusive or exclusive of margin, uh, your own rates, that is. And if you are applying different percentages to different invoices you're on-charging, make it absolutely clear to what category of on-charge cost the various percentages apply. One other point that I think is useful to make clear at the contracting stage uh, comes down to cost fluctuations. Now, one of the reasons for having a charge-up contract is that you want to avoid the whole cost fluctuations issue. However, you may want cost fluctuations to apply to your own rates. There is uh, a relatively sound argument that a contractor should hold their own rates for the duration of the contract. It is something within their control. It's not subject to price sensitivity. It's not an external matter. Um, I would strongly suggest that if you want to make your own rates uh, subject to an uplift during the contract, that is something that you should address at the time of contracting and make sure the person with whom you are contracting is aware that after 12 months, 18 months, whatever it happens to be, there will be a percentage uplift to your own rates. So those are all things that really need to be hammered out at the time of the contract when it's all set up originally. The next point then moving on to the administration of a charge-up contract is you have to accept that a charge-up contract requires substantially more administration than a fixed-price contract. Going into a charge-up contract and decision to do it, you must accept there is more paperwork. There's no two ways around it. You must accept that it is not a simple case of just passing on whatever comes in the door uh, without filter or without checking it before it goes on to the owner. And this then brings us to 
the discussion around estimates. So let's start from the not unreasonable proposition that there will almost always be an estimate. It'll be extremely rare that there will not be an estimate when we enter into a contract. Let's then accept that the estimate, howsoever it's used, will always be used as a yardstick against which the performance of your final price will be measured. And it will also be used to determine if the final price you charge is a reasonable price. I'll discuss this a wee bit more in a few minutes, but it is impossible in a charge-up contract to avoid either the common law rule of reasonable price applying or the Consumer Guarantees Act applying that where there is no price agreed between the parties that the consumer will pay no more than a reasonable price for the services or the products applied. So I'll come back to what those mean in a wee bit. So when you're preparing your estimate, an estimate isn't just a dollar figure. It's very likely that an estimate is going to be a document. And that document will include qualifiers. It will include exclusions. It will say why I cannot price this. It will say my estimate does not allow for price increases over the life of the job. All of those things are crucially important and will impact on whether the final price as compared to your estimate is reasonable. So I'm now going to suggest something which may sound odd, but I think it's quite important. Consider making the estimate a contract document. The reason for suggesting this is that it is not uncommon for there to be disputes as to what the estimate was. It's not unlike when people prepare fixed price contracts and there are iterations of quotes from the start and then the quote is added in and subtracted to and there's credits and additions until eventually the parties reach a final figure. And quite often that quote is incorporated as a contract document Uh, And it is clear it is important to make sure which quote it is because there can be many iterations. Similarly with an estimate, there can be many iterations of the estimate which float around until such time as the parties agree they're going to contract. So to avoid issues as to which estimate it is was in place when you contracted, it's a pretty good idea to remove all doubt by making the estimate with all of your qualifiers, with all of the information upon which it was based, a contract document. What I want to try to get across on this is that, again, accepting the situation that your estimate, you're not going to be able to get away from it, rather than seeing it as a rod for your back, look at your estimate as a tool to be able to justify your position after the event. So feeding into this, your estimate is likely to be detailed. It's going to be likely to be broken down into known areas. It might be broken down into investigation. It might be broken down into very straightforward renovations, exterior cladding, or whatever it happens to be. It's becoming more common now, particularly arising from the current issues around supply chain, cost fluctuations, for members to enter into charge-up contracts for new builds. If you're doing a charge-up contract for a new build, there is no reason you cannot be giving a relatively broken-down estimate identifying the areas where you can and cannot give relative certainty or relatively accurate estimates. You might say, we're not in any position to give any any estimate whatsoever around earthworks because you have given us no scope, because we don't know about the ground conditions. You might say we're in a position to give an estimate on this foundation on the presumption that the consented foundation is the foundation which is constructed. 
and this is our estimate of the price at this time. So that that way your estimate builds up into a tool that you utilize after the event. So before I move on to the 10% rule, and I, I guarantee you I'm coming to it, I just want to knock an old wives tail on the head. Now there is a standing presumption or whatever it happens to be, that there's no such thing as a variation in a charge-up contract. Now, that's absolute nonsense, just 100%. That's a situation of confusing paying for a variation with a variation itself arising. Um, As long as I've been doing these seminars, I've been trying to get across a variation is not a sum of money. A variation is a change to the scope of the works of the contract. And it is hugely important to be able to demonstrate a variation in a charge-up contract. A regular row in a charge-up contract is obviously the final cost. Member would speak to us or another lawyer and say, oh, but they made all these changes as they went along. Not unlike in fixed price contracts, the variations are not documented. It is common across our sector, and I'm not, I'm not being hypercritical here, but it is common across our sector, but we're just not good at recording variations. And there's no point in pretending it does not come around and bite people in the backside. It simply does. It's one of the main matters that we deal with in litigation in this sector, and it just keeps arising. And there is absolutely nothing special about a charge-up contract, which means that a variation should not be recorded in the usual way, whether it arises from an owner's change, whether it arises from something reasonably necessary to carry out the works, which is missing on their drawings whether it arises from a council change. And I'm just going to land on the council changes for a minute. And I'm going to be blunt. It's one of the ones that particularly annoys me in that council might come to site and say, oh, you have to change this. The member just goes and does it. And then after it says, but the council said I had to do it, so I had to go and do it. If you think about the relationship here, the council is telling the owner through you what has to happen. You're still contracted to do what was in place before the council said it, say to the owner, this is what the council said, this is what has to change. You agree that change, then you do it, then you go do the work. All of the provisions around variations in the master builder contract, whether it's unprocurable materials, council require changes, so on and so forth, all require the okay of the owner before they proceed. It is as simple as that. That situation does not change in a charge up contract. So this then brings us to the 10% rule. Uh, Now, the 10% rule, or even the 33% rule, depending on the case, is well established that where an estimate is given and where that estimate can be demonstrated to be a near quote, there is an expectation, and put simply, there will be a ceiling of 10% for a deviation from the estimate. The traditional, for want of a better term, use of a charge-up contract would largely have rendered that 10% rule relatively obsolete. The reason I say that is if you're doing a a genuine renovation uh, on an old villa or something like that, and there's genuine doubt as to the scope, it is well established that the 10% rule is of very limited application. It might have application to, to certain elements of the contract, which didn't change. But where there is genuinely figuring it out as you go along, as there would have been in the more traditional use of charge-up contracts, the 10% rule is of relatively limited application. And this is where we might fall into more what might be called a rough estimate. Now, 
even in that situation, uh, the case law in New Zealand does uh, uh, seem to suggest that there is an upper limit of, of a third, 33%, uh, after which you need to demonstrate good reasons why you need to exceed that cap. Now, the reason I talk about the traditional use, for want of a better term, of charge-up contracts is the 10% rule is likely to be of greater application where you're using charge-up for a new build contract. The scope is likely to be largely certain. The works are likely to be consented. And principally, the only reason that a charge-up contract is being used is because of price uncertainty. You don't want to give a fixed-price contract and then be relying on uh, provisions around cost fluctuations. In that situation, where there is a defined scope of work, uh, it is more likely that the 10% rule is going to be of greater application, if not a full application. So something of warning to those who want to use charge-up contracts as a way of avoiding fixed-price contracts with cost fluctuations, um, it is not the panacea you might expect where there is a defined and well-scoped contract. And uh, with regard to that 10%, unless your estimate makes it clear otherwise, it's quite likely that that 10% is going to encompass the price increases which are at play in the market right now. So it's hugely important to be aware of these. Now, this brings me back to a detailed estimate. And there may be parts of your estimate, which the 10% is of application, but if your estimate is detailed and you say, I cannot give any price on this, there's too much uncertainty around this, the different elements of your estimate may individually be able to escape the 10% rule. So that's why rather than looking at the 10% rule as an overall cap on the contract price, if you look at it as what's its, what's its application to the different parts of my estimate. So let's take, for example, you're doing a new build and you're doing a roof and the roof is consented, it's fully designed. Essentially, the only unknown in that situation is price increases. So absent price increases, there should be no reason why the 10% rule shouldn't apply to the estimate given for the roof in that given situation. And you can see why I'm trying to encourage the use of your, of, of your estimate as a tool to assist you rather than a rod for your back. And so that's you know, the, the, the big point around that is that. But also the point about the near quote, which is a term I used, that's the, that's the point at which the 10% rule kicks in. And this comes back to the importance of recording variations to a charge-up contract. Because the more you move away from the original scope of works, the more you are no longer comparing apples with apples. You move away from a near quote. And it could be quite, quite a substantial difference in some of, the, some of the elements. So there may be a change to the cladding material. There might be a change to the roofing material that make the estimate with regard to those elements of the build essentially moot, and you're starting from scratch. So that's why it is hugely important to record variations during a charge of contract. It is a way of, uh, of escaping the shackles of your estimate and of demonstrating that at least with regard to some of the items of work, the original estimate is no longer relevant. So as I said, rather than looking at the 10% rule as some overall cap on the contract price, 
if you look at it as, well, are the various elements, like you may have, if, if there's nine elements out of 10 and you're within 10% for all of those, for, for those nine elements, and the other one is 25, 30, 40%, but you demonstrate that um, there's a whole load of owner changes, uh, that the owners wanted different materials, that the owner wanted a higher spec of material than they originally contracted for. Well, then you show that essentially the original estimate for that piece of work is no longer relevant. And therefore, the final price is to be assessed independent of the original estimate. So that's the point about, about the 10% rule. It's about, are you comparing like with like? If you want to demonstrate after the event that you are no longer comparing like with like, that is an evidential issue. As with any arguments around variations, it is about have you recorded the variation? Also, I come back to then originally, have you recorded your estimate accurately? Have you recorded what it is upon you gave your original estimate? All to assist you to break free of that 10% shackle. So rather than looking back afterwards into a vacuum, you can assist yourself as you go along by being comprehensive with regard to what the estimate was based upon, any changes from it, or the ground conditions, whatever it happens to be, but hugely important to, to demonstrate that afterwards. I'm gonna move on to invoicing and actual reasonable costs and the evidence to be provided. All charge-up contracts are subject to the common law rule of reasonable price. By definition, there's no price for the contract, and therefore it's subject to the reasonable price rule in consumer contracts, um, that's written into law under the CGA. So what does reasonable price mean? The first part of reasonable price is, is actual. It's actual and reasonable. Actual means you have actually incurred the cost rather than theoretically incurred the cost. The most common application of this is that invoices for materials, subtrades, etc., must be passed on inclusive of trade discount. If you have not incurred the cost, you cannot pass it on. There's no two ways about it. Uh, that this is a question which has also application in fixed price contracts when it comes to passing on PC sums or final cost of provisional sums. In all instances, there is no question. It is what you have actually paid net of trade discounts. It's what is on charged with your percentage on top. So the second part of action reasonable is that the costs was reasonably incurred. What does this mean? It imputes a obligation of efficiency onto the contractor, efficiency of organization, reasonable efficiency of work. It might be better to give some examples of what is unreasonable to pass on. Uh, excessive resources on a task. You know, if you're four people doing something which just demonstrably takes two, that can be that can be discounted as unreasonable. Excessive hours for a given task can be knocked down as unreasonable. A common one, and one which just quickly gets knocked out the door, charging for rework. If you have to come back or your subs come back and have to attend to defects and they purport to charge you for attending to their own defects, you cannot pass that on. I mean, also you probably shouldn't be paying them either. But charging for rework is something which, you know, can't be passed on to the owner. Costs arising 
from the contractor's own fault or from a subcontractor's own fault. Um, you know, for example, you call for your electrician to do the first fix. They come to site and the place isn't ready because they, the carpenters haven't, haven't got the framing ready. The electrician packs off and sends you a bill for, the, you know, for, for turning up for the day and doing nothing. That's not something you can pass on to the owner. The electricians come to site on your instruction, hasn't been able to work, has charged you for the pleasure. That's not something you uncharge up the food chain to the owner. So it's difficult to exactly say what are and are not reasonable costs, but there will be certainly be very obvious ones which should not be passed on. Um, reasonable cost uh, litigation is extremely involved. Something that we rail against in reasonable cost litigation is so-called market valuation or, or, or market costs, or so what I call the phantom contractor. The owners will purport to say, had we gone to market, we could have got this work done for $60,000 at a fixed price. Well, our response to that is, you didn't go to market. You didn't go out to tender and get that work for a fixed price. You chose to go and have this work done on a charger basis. You take what comes with that, so long as we can demonstrate that what we're charging for the work is reasonable. Um, with regard to the reasonableness of rates, once your own rates are included in the charge-up contract, our view is that's the end of the matter on that. That if the owner wants to question whether your rate in the charge-up contract for your foreman or your rate for a hammer hand or your rate for a carpenter or your rate for time for project management are a little high or whatever it happens to be, the issue there is um, the time to question that is the time you contract. Now, I'm not suggesting that they should be exorbitant, but what I am saying is that if those rates have been agreed at the time you contract, they are a term of the contract um, as much as anything else. This then takes us to the evidence which is acquired at invoicing. And quite simply put, Every dollar and cent invoice in a charge of contract should be, I would go nearly go as far as say must, but I will stop it should, be provided with every invoice under the contract. Simple as that. Every invoice from your, from your trade suppliers, materials, every invoice from your subs, the timesheets for your own staff as to what they were doing. Every single time you invoice, those should be provided, quite simply. No question asked. Otherwise, how are you demonstrating to the person on the other side that you are passing on costs in accordance with the contract, charging in accordance with your rates under the contract? So I come back to the question about rates. It's not a question of whether your $70 an hour for the carpenter is reasonable. That's been agreed. It's a case of are the 48 hours for which you're charging for that carpenter for this week are reasonable for what the carpenter did. Every time you invoice, you must give those details all the time. Keep them on record. Every job should build up into a record of the final cost. It's not uncommon in charge of contracts for the way the costs are going to be questioned near the end. So, for example, we've been invoicing as we go along. The owner hasn't been questioning what we've been charging as we go along we're getting towards 80, 90% complete. We're now starting to tip over the original estimate and the owner's going, what's going on here? It is okay 
and it is entirely orthodox that in the final scheme and in the final analysis, everything which has been invoiced can be examined. So it's not a case of, well, they didn't question our hours and rates for the foundation when, when we invoiced for it, so they can't be questioned at the end of the job. That's simply not the case. And pushing back on those is a good way to have a row develop. So it may only be at the end of the job that we realize, oh, actually, we look at the foundation and the foundation actually blew out by 30, 40% over what we all thought it was going to be. Nobody really picked up on it because it's only when you add all the other invoices and other invoices and other invoices on top of the work and they all are you know, marginally over that in the end, we tip past the estimate and we then have to reverse engineer where it was we exceeded the estimate with regard to some item of work and was that justifiable? So it is not a case of, well, they paid it so they can't question it. A charge-up job, the issues in, in whether it's a reasonable price or not may only come to light as we hit the end of the job. That's a common misconception that is worth putting out of the head. Um, one last area. Now, these are going to come as uh, a little bit of a shock to some of you. But those of you who perhaps work under uh, more formalized contracts around cost reimbursement, such as the NZIA contracts, will be more used to the idea of ongoing obligations around estimates, uh, final cost to complete estimates, and, and so on and so forth, th those rolling obligations. But those rolling obligations in the NZIA contracts haven't been invented by the architects. There are well-established common law rules in New Zealand around ongoing obligations in charge-up contracts. And I'm just going to run through four of them here. So the first one is an obligation, if you're asked, to give an estimate or a fixed price for the balance of the works if the owner asks. So if at some stage during the charge-up contract, the owner says, I want a fixed price on the balance of the, uh, of the works, you're either obliged to do it or you're obliged to say, I still can't give you a fixed price. Here's my revised estimate for the balance of the works. So if an owner asks for a fixed price, you can take it that there is an obligation to give a fixed price if you're able to for the balance of the works. If you're not able to, you should say why and you should give an updated estimate. It's a very long-standing uh, common law rule um, in New Zealand um, coming from the late 70s and early 80s and has been actioned a few times and we have seen that in adjudication in this office. Just before I move off that, it does bring the point of, uh, we are encountering what might be called hybrid contracts where um, some members want to do charge up for part of the work and then are happy to give fixed, fixed price for the balance. Again, that's just, there's nothing wrong with that. It's quite orthodox. It's about scoping it. I keep coming back to scoping. Where is the delineation between what is charge up and what's fixed? Um, but that, that comes back to that first point I talked about there. If you are asked for a fixed price for the balance of the works, there is an obligation in common law to give one unless you're unable to do so. There is a positive obligation to keep the owner informed of costs exceeding estimates. Now, that might arise for many reasons. Might arise from cost fluctuations, price increases in the market. It might arise from situations encountered on the site. I come back again to 
using the existing provisions of the master builder contract, notification of cost fluctuations, recording variations correctly, doing these will go a long way to satisfying your obligation to keep an owner informed that costs are exceeding the estimate. All coming back to always wanting to being able, if it's appropriate, to exceed your 10% barrier if the 10% is what applies to your situation. But there is a positive obligation, 100%, to keep an owner informed of cost exceeding estimates, feeding into the next obligation to notify the owner of circumstances which can lead to increasing costs. Again, it comes back to the same points. We have now encountered this. The costs are going to go up. This material isn't available anymore. The material, which is a replacement, is more expensive. There is a positive obligation in common law for the contractor and a charge of contract to keep the owner informed of these matters. Again, I want to get across that, to my mind, looking at these obligations, I see these as ways that you protect yourself. Again, rather than seeing these as rods for your back, these are ways to protect yourself against uh, assertions that you haven't been keeping the owner informed, that you're blown out over the estimate. These are all common sense requirements that actually serve to protect you where you follow them. The overarching common law provision, which actually in New Zealand gives rise to the provisions that I've just addressed, is a very long-standing and well-recognized and not overturned obligation to safeguard the client's interests and a charge of contract. Now, that is an extremely high obligation when you think about it. Now, that obligation may come in many ways. In commercial contracts, um, it might be to keep them informed and, and the outcome of that might be, might be quite dramatic. With regard to owners who you know have a budget, owners who you know have a mortgage limit, all of these are manifestly increased. But again, I come back to these should be seen as matters to assist you in the situation rather than as a rod for your back. It's in no one's interest that there's a $600,000 estimate on a contract and the final cost is $850,000 and there has been no correspondence or communication with the owner on the way along. That doesn't serve anyone's purpose after the event. What we encounter is that those situations not only lead to assertions of breaches of these implied terms and contracts, uh, but also lead to much closer scrutiny of the actual invoicing itself. Are the hours correct? Was there excessive resourcing? So all of these good practices are ways of avoiding disputes and to avoid an overly forensic analysis being made of the costs which you have charged going through the contract. No, that's, uh, that's perfect. Thanks again for your uh, time, Mark. That's outstanding. Thanks. That's a wrap for today. Really appreciate you joining in and uh, good luck to those of you that are back at work tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you, Rick.